is having faith and trust in Him that everything He's promised throughout His Word will come to pass. To truly believe that there is a living being in the universe, not just a phantom or a ghost, but a true living being, that He's created this earth and put us on it, and He's made everything beautiful and wonderful that there is, and that somebody that great, that majestic, needs to be trusted, needs to be believed, because he has the key to eternal life, the key to the resurrection when Christ returns, and it is that deep abiding trust and belief that keeps us moving. And this book of James <clears throat> has as its overall theme faith. It begins with it, it ends with it, it goes to it, often throughout the entire text. And we're coming down to a section now where he discusses some of the hindrances to faith. We got into that a little bit even last week uh, in chapter 1 because he had talked about how we should not waver or be unstable, unstable or double-minded and that we have to have a single focus. That is the kingdom of God. There are many, many things in life that you and I do, activities we go through every day of our lives, whether it's work or recreation or entertainment or whatever it might be. But our whole purpose in life has to be remembered. That God has made promises to each and every one of us and that He intends to fulfill those and it is His good pleasure to give us the kingdom. He wants us there and he's very positive about it. We waver sometimes, not based perhaps on what God is and who he is, but perhaps we look at ourselves and that gives us cause to pause. And it gives us a, an excuse to be discouraged or frustrated because we look at ourselves, we look at each other, we look at the world around us, or the waves as Peter did, and get our mind off focus. So everything we have, have to do and do on this earth should have the goal in mind of the resurrection, of Christ's return and his kingdom on this earth and us being a part of it. And when we lose that focus, we become double-minded and we're not committed and focused in the way that we ought to be. So, he tells us to ask in faith, nothing wavering at the beginning of the book. And then he starts getting into some of the problems that we have, things that get in the way of faith. So, to understand faith, to grasp it, we have to have lessons on what we need to do and what things get in our way. And James deals with that. He talks about human beings, toward the end of chapter 1, that we have desires of the flesh, pulls away from God and pulls away from His eternal purposes to serve ourselves, to serve the world, to do things other than what God would have us do. And that leads us easily to wrong attitudes, to sins, to things that get in the way of our trust that we'll be in God's kingdom. 
It is we ourselves that are our own worst enemy. We get in our own way, and then Satan takes ex- it, uh, advantage of our human nature. And it is so easy for that to happen. So what he's saying is, you have to conduct your life in such a way that your human nature doesn't pull you down, and you don't let, don't let Satan pull you in wrong directions and hinder your trust in the kingdom of God. We are often like little children are. You know, it's not too hard for a parent to know when a child has done something wrong. You come in the room and the child has had his hand in the cookie jar and he pulled it back real quickly, perhaps. But the look on his face is guilt-stricken. The crumbs around his mouth are evidence. And the way he's looking at you in fear (laughs) or trepidation or whatever, or in disguise of trying to hide the truth from you, it's not too hard for a parent to get it of what has just transpired. So the child has done something to harm the relationship between the parent and the child. And what we do so often and what we think gets in the way of our relationship with God. So it isn't he that is the problem, but it's the things we do that destroy our confidence and our trust in him. Because it makes us feel guilty, it makes us feel discouraged, and when we look at ourselves, (laughs) there's an awful lot to be discouraged about. So we have to look to Him more than at ourselves, so that we can feel confident and strong in the sacrifice of Christ, in the forgiveness of sin, in the mercy of God, and all those things that He says He is. And thankfully, because we do continue to sin, we continue to make mistakes, we always have that sacrifice there. And we can call on Him at any time and ask for forgiveness, and He is very willing to do that. At the same time, we cannot continue in sin, because He says that we are to confess our sins to Him and forsake them. So, those are the things that get in the way of our belief that we'll be in the resurrection. They pull us down. So he gives us some insight into this, that God wants to give us good and perfect gifts, in verse 17. And then he tells us we're to be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath, and that our anger, our frustrations, do not work the righteousness of God. And that's where we left off last week. But he is going to continue in this same vein... It's not that he's not talking about faith. Truly, he's talking about the things that hinder our trust and belief. So in verse 21, he says, Because our attitudes and our anger and our, too, our willingness to speak too much and to listen too little gets in our way. <clears throat> so he says in verse 21, Wherefore, get rid of the things that get in your way. Wherefore, lay apart all filthiness, any type of filthiness, whatever kind it might be, anything that makes us spotted with the ways of Satan in this world, as he'll say a little later on, but that's where he's headed here. Any kind of filthy thinking, 
speaking, and superfluity of naughtiness. That's kind of 1611 English, but it means shallowness, uh, wrongdoing, evil that comes about so easily to us. Uh, It's superfluous. It gets in the way, in other words, of our goal and our path to the kingdom of God. So, get rid of those superfluous, those shallow, those things that so easily come to us, that so easily occupy our minds and emotions if we're not careful. And, in trying to shed those things, receive with meekness, (coughs) humbled, meek, before the word of God. Receive with meekness the engrafted word. See, to all of us, the Word of God is like a skin graft or a graft in a tree. The Word of God does not come easily to us. It is not something that naturally grows from a human being. You plant an apple tree and it has apples. But you can graft other types of trees into that. God... In, uh, created man to be righteous, to be holy. But the nature of man and the influence of Satan caused us almost immediately to turn the other way. And we have been, had minds that are contrary to God, that don't fit the tree of righteousness. So, conversion means that the Word of God has to be grafted into our thinking, into our emotions, into our feelings. It does not come natural. When someone says, well, I'm just naturally good, you know they don't have much understanding. (laughs) Because we are not naturally good. We are not naturally godly. We are naturally selfish to the core. We want what we want ahead of anybody else by nature. And we want to put ourselves above others. That's why he says, esteem others better than yourselves. So, we have to grasp, and that's what conversion is, is the changing of the mind and emotions to come to think and react the way God thinks and reacts. And that is not an easy thing for any human being. Perhaps it's a little easier for some who have a sweet nature or a good disposition or whatever it might be that makes them easier to get along with than other people. There are people who just naturally have better attitudes toward life than others do. So, but it's an uphill battle for everyone to come to have truly the love of God, not just the love of self and emotional uh, kindness or affection for other human beings. With some, that comes easier than with others. But the true love of God that is outgoing is not easy to come by. The engrafted Word of God has to be received with meekness. In other words, we have to set aside pride and vanity. We have to look at ourselves in a true and correct light and see what's really there and accept God's way of thinking above our own so that it becomes part of us. 
which is able to save your souls. This word, this Bible, is able to save us from eternal death and to give us eternal life. You would think that we would have a strong desire, brethren, to study this word carefully and daily. You would think we would have that. Why is it that for most people it is so hard to pick this word up and to read it on a very regular basis and to desire fervently to read it? For in it are the words of life that are able to give us eternal life with no pain, no sorrow, no tears, no death, all the things that human beings would want, and yet we find it so difficult to pick up the Bible and read it, and so easy to deal with superfluous things, things that don't really matter, is where our time can so easily go. And that tells us right there that God's Word has to be grafted into our minds and emotions because as natural, normal human beings, we will resist it. But it is able to save our souls. And we need to review it regularly. Verse 22, But be you doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. It is not enough just to read it, or just to hear it read. We, at some point, have to do the things we're reading. And that's where the rub comes. We're here because we believe God. We are here because we wish to be a part of the kingdom of God and the first resurrection. We are here because we believe that He is a rewarder of those who diligently serve Him. But it is very difficult for us to follow through on all the things that He says. But He's not interested in people who hear only and don't follow through. But it is the bane of mankind and humanity that we will listen, but we have trouble producing. For if any be a hearer of the word, and not a doer, he is like to a man beholding his natural face in a mirror. For he beholds himself, and goes his way, and immediately forgets what manner of man he was. So we can pick up the Bible. It is the mirror of the soul. We can read it. We can see that we do not completely fit it or fall woefully short of it in many cases in our lives. And yet it's so easy then to set the Bible down and forget what we just read and go on being the way we are. But God says He's interested in doers and He's going to tie this to faith here in a little bit in this book. That this isn't something He's just throwing in here but it has very much to do with probably the second most important thing. Faith, hope, and love. The greatest is love, but the others are very, very close behind it. Because he says without faith, you simply cannot please God. It's impossible to do. We went through that in Hebrews 11 with a story of many people who did what God said. Even though it hurt them, even though it was difficult... Even though they had to wait, even though it was painful and many times trying and led even to persecution, martyrdom, death. 
They trusted God because they believed in the new Jerusalem to come. So this life meant nothing to them by comparison. They had trust that if God said do it, do it. Even though everything in your body might, in your mind might be saying, do something different. Verse 25, But whoso looks into the perfect law of liberty, I've had people try to convince me that the law of God is a ball and chain, that it's a shackle around our necks. And he calls it here the perfect law of liberty. It's the world that's the ball and chain. It's Satan's way that is the ball and chain. Because it keeps us back from our goal of eternal life. If we give in to the ways and the thinking and the doings of this world, then it's like dragging a heavy weight around. But the law of liberty, if we keep the law of God, it gives us freedom not to do the things of the flesh, but it gives us the liberty of knowing that when we obey God, there's no death penalty. We know there's no chastening coming. We know we don't have to worry about a guilty conscience for the sins we've committed. But when we give in to breaking that law, then comes frustration, guilt, discouragement, fear of not making it into the kingdom of God. All those negative emotions come into our minds when we sin. So if we keep the law... It makes us feel better. We feel encouraged. We feel strengthened. We feel positive. We tend to have more hope. When we break it, then comes the negative. So the law is a law of freedom, of liberty. Keep it and the penalties are gone. Break it and the penalties come. So who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues therein? Being, he being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work. This man shall be blessed in his deeds or in his life or in his doings. Continue doing the things that God says in his word and you'll be blessed. And we'll find out very shortly here, if we get that far, that faith cannot stand alone. It has to have another ingredient. And he's already beginning to introduce this. You can't be a forgetful hearer, but a doer. In other words, works. And he talks about that a little later on. Because faith is inhibited. It is hindered when we don't do the things that we know to do. How can you faith, have faith and trust in God in the resurrection and eternal life when you're doing things contrary to what our Father tells us to do? That creates conflict, and it creates double-mindedness. So verse 26 then, he says, If any man among you seem to be religious, and I think as we look back over the history of the end-time church, 
we can see a lot of people who seemed to be religious. They seemed to have good attitudes. In many cases, to observers within the church, they appeared to be pillars in the church. They appeared to be strong. They appeared to be something that they were not, actually. And when trouble came, they disappeared. And some whom we might have judged weak became strong and are still in the church today, still seeking and striving for the kingdom of God, even though they wouldn't have been considered that way 30 years ago when these things started coming down. I say 30 just as a round number. <clears throat> he seems to be religious and bridles not his tongue, but deceives his own heart. This man's religion is vain. Brings it down to our communication, our tongue, the things that we say. That we can seem religious in every way. But if we misuse the tongue, and the tongue can cause a great deal of hurt and pain and misery, and every last one of us has committed infraction in this area. Every last one of us. We have trouble controlling our tongue. What is most of the pain that we have felt right here in this group? Our own tongues wagging about each other, causing confusion, frustration, and division, and negativity. It's our own tongues that have done it to us. And God says, if that's the way we are and the way we live, our religion is vain. In other words, it won't do us any good. It is with the tongue that we hurt people the most. I've never seen anybody in the church in all the years I've been in it, all my life, basically. I've never seen anybody in the church take out baseball bats and start pounding each other on the third row during the middle of services. I've never seen them bring them to potlucks. I've never seen them uh, slicing each other's throats. I've never seen them taking a knife and stabbing each other in the back physically, have you? We don't see that. So we do the most damage with the sharpest instrument we have. That's our tongue. Boy, have I seen a lot of that. Done a lot of it and felt a lot of it over the years. Well, James brings down this matter of faith even to the tiny member of the body, the tongue. Do your toes hurt people? Not generally. Does your little finger hurt people? Not generally. How about your navel? Does it bother anybody? Never heard of such a thing. What about your tongue? Boy, we've hurt a lot of people with our tongues, haven't we? Every last one of us. I certainly have. And I'm ashamed of it. But it doesn't do any good to even admit it unless we start to do something about it, does it? That's what he even tells us. Again, going back to Isaiah 58, get your finger pointing, or how do we point our finger? We don't usually point our finger at people when we put them down. We usually point our tongue at them. 
it, it, it could be called finger pointing perhaps, but it's, it's the words we say when we point the finger that do the most damage. You know, I could stand here and wag my finger like this all day long. It wouldn't hurt anybody much. I might look kind of stupid, but it wouldn't hurt anybody very much. But it doesn't take long with the tongue to hurt somebody, does it? We all do it. So James brings this matter of faith and trust in God down to such a tiny member. And he talks about it more later on. It's, it's a huge element of faith. That we trust God, and he'll bring it down to judgment and everything else. That we trust God to be the judge of all people. Not us, our emotions, and our tongues. We do not have the capacity, brethren, to make proper judgments about each other. But we can so quickly state our opinions and our emotion, can we not, about any and everyone. It comes so naturally. But you know what God says? In all His knowledge, in all His wisdom, in His ability to read the mind, the heart, he says he ponders our hearts. He ultimately has to give the final judgment of whether we are going to be in the kingdom of God and live forever or go into the lake of fire. And even he who has all knowledge, all wisdom, all understanding, all love, does not make a final judgment until the time we die on this earth or we're changed at the coming of Christ, whichever comes first. We still have hope. We still have a chance. Even Esau, as bitter as he was, in God's mind still had a chance. Bitter, angry mind that he had toward Jacob. Esau could not find it, even though he wept bitterly to forgive Jacob and his mother. He just couldn't do it. And as a result, he may lose out on eternal life. Perhaps he was never converted, really. Perhaps he still has his chance in second resurrection. The Bible isn't clear about that. Esau, Adam, Judas, or easy for ones to say, won't be there because of how their lives ended and the attitudes they had when they did end. But God doesn't make that judgment. God is positive, brethren. He gives us a long list of people who will be in His kingdom, and there is no one that He says will not be in His kingdom in the Bible. There are some that perhaps are questionable, but we don't know how much they truly understood. We don't know whether they really had a chance at salvation or not. Even with Judas, who betrayed Christ directly, Judas never understood, and Judas was never converted. He never had God's Spirit. He did what he was called to do. And Christ even said, Father, I haven't lost any except him. And he is the one that we expected all along to do this. And who had that type of mind and mindset that Satan could take advantage of him. So let's not be too harsh even with Judas. 
Because you know what? I've slain Christ many, many times in attitude, in mind, in action, and so have you. Every sin that we commit is one that would have killed us had he not died for our sins and his blood been shed for us. So it's easy, perhaps, to condemn an individual like Esau or Judas. But every one of us has been just as much a Judas as Judas was at one time or another, and many times over. And we even have the Spirit of God. Yet it's difficult for us, isn't it? So, James puts it on the line for us, doesn't he? He says that if we don't control our tongues, we might as well not even try, because our religion is vain. Vain means of no purpose, of no consequence, of no value. That's a tough one for us. Probably the hardest Let's not be discouraged by this, but James just strikes right to the tongue of the matter. (laughs) You know, you could say the heart of the matter, but it's the tongue. It's the tongue that reflects the heart and mind. If the tongue speaks negative things, it reflects the heart and mind. So, he gets right to the crux of the problem our most obvious and most glaring problem that reflects what's going on in the heart and mind. Then he says in verse 27, this is a contrast, see? He says, this is the way you naturally are. This is what you have to learn to control if you're to come to have true faith in God. But by contrast, verse 27 says, pure religion and undefiled before God And the Father is this. So we can be deceptive. We cannot see ourselves as we walk away from the mirror the way we really are. We can kid ourselves that our religion is good while we say bad things about each other. But if you really want pure religion, here it is. To visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction, to show love, to show mercy, to show kindness to those who do not have everything in life that others might have, that are bereft of companionship for whatever reasons, and to keep himself unspotted from the world. The world lies in sin. Satan has deceived the whole world. The world is ungodly. So we have to keep the spots off our garments, to be clean before God. He gives us white garments through the forgiveness and the blood of Christ, and we have to keep them clean. And that is a very, very difficult thing to do because our nature is to be like the world around us, to be selfish, to want to do the things we want to do. And that's why we have a monumental day of task every day of our lives, to struggle against our selfish human nature. So, key elements here. Have compassion, empathy, mercy. 
spend time with, those who are in an unfortunate situation, and not to have the spots of the world upon us. That's the kind of religion God would have us follow. In other words, we're so busy doing good and keeping from evil that we don't have time to sit around and run each other down. Because that destroys faith. That destroys confidence. Not only the, one, the confidence of the one who is perpetrating it and thereby defiling his own conscience and hurting his confidence and trust and faith in God, but it also works on the one being talked about. Because it makes them feel bad in, in a wrong way. So let's go on to chapter 2 then. My brethren, have not the faith of our Lord Emmanuel, the Lord of glory, with respect of persons. So he says, our relationship with other people has a great deal to do with the level of faith that we have in God. How much can we trust Him? And if we have respect of persons, he goes on to explain, is something that will create difficulties, castes or class differences, or various other differences in our congregations and our relationships with each other as a family. For if there come to you or your assembly a man with a gold ring and goodly apparel, and there come in also a poor man in poor clothing or vile raiment, and you have respect to him that wears the fancy clothing, and say to him, Sit you here in a good place, and say to the poor, Stand you there, or sit here under my footstool. We're all equal before God. We're all the same before God. We're neither male nor female. We're neither Greek nor Jew. We're all the same. Human beings trying to be part of the kingdom of God. So we should not put one above another. All have to come to the judgment seat of God. And if we show favoritism in those ways, then we're creating problems among ourselves. Are you not then partial in yourselves and are become judges of evil thoughts? That person must be evil because he's poor. Can't afford a new car, can't afford nice clothing, can't afford a gold ring. Must be evil. Must be incompetent. Must be whatever we want to judge them. But this person, because he's physically successful, must be righteous. And yet, what does God say? That it's for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God is like going through a camel through the eye of a needle. Almost impossible for anyone who is rich in physical goods to be in the kingdom of God. That's why God calls us. The base, the poor, for the most part. You don't see many rich people who were rich in this life in the church of God. Never did see many. Just a few. So if we judge by appearances, is what he's saying. 
then we're judging that person to be evil or bad or not as good as somebody else is. We don't have that right. That infringes upon our trust and faith in God. Verse 5, Hearken, or listen, my beloved brethren, has not God chosen the poor of this world? That would be us. Most people called into the church in the first century and in this century have been the weak, the base. What does weak mean? Unable to control the self. Weak in self-control and will and power. What does... Where, where was I here? He's chosen, uh, chosen the poor of the world, rich in faith, and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to them that love him. So generally, he's called those who are not rich, who do not have great and high opinions of themselves, because it's easier to humble them. They already realize they're not rich and wonderful and powerful. And therefore, the Word of God more easily grafts to those who are, in their own minds, not great and wonderful and powerful and strong and can jump over buildings and that type of thing. He gets those who have insecurities, uh, low self-esteem, low self-worth. That's the kind he generally calls. To humble them and then get them to recognize that only in him can there be strength and power, that of themselves they can do nothing. You know, you can live your life and you can look back and say, what really have I accomplished? Now, you younger people aren't there yet. But some of those who, of us who are older realize that we're not eternal, that our bodies begin to break down, our minds begin to break down, that we're headed for six feet under. And it's getting closer every year. And as the hair turns gray, <laughs> and as the body begins to wrinkle and get decrepit, and the joints start seizing up, and on and on and on it goes, you begin to realize, I'm not here forever. I thought I was when I was 20. That's been a long, long time ago. And we have to begin to reflect on what value has our life been? What good would, did we do toward God, toward His promises, toward His kingdom? toward helping other people, toward making the place a better, the world a better place to live because we lived and breathed air. And at least for me, it's easy to say, well, nothing. I hope that can change. I hope that can change. I hope that by the time I cork off, I would be able to say... My life was worth something. I did some good somewhere. I'd love to be able to say that. I guess there's no time like the present to start, is there? For any of us. We've been fighting it for years, haven't we? But we haven't, any of us, lived up to what we have wanted to be. And James points it out. Lovingly, kindly, 
encouraging us to have faith in God, but at the still the same point, James gets down to brass tacks here. And God has called us to confound the wise. Weak and small and base as we started, we are here, my beloved brethren, to become strong, to become courageous, to become powerful in the Spirit and the Word of God. That's what we're here for. We're not here to just be told we're human and carnal and weak and base. Yeah, that's God called this kind. He called us, but He doesn't expect us to stay this way. He expects us to change. He expects us to become powerful and to do good as an example to the rest of the world. Peter, James, John, all the apostles were cowards. They were weak until the Spirit of God moved powerfully within them. And over time, they became very strong, very courageous to the point of death and withstood prison, withstood persecution, and martyrdom, dying for what they believed physically, giving their lives for the future. And God expects us to become that. He wouldn't have called us if he didn't think it could happen. He handpicked everyone here and many others for that very purpose. But they had problems back there. James addressed this, remember, to all 12 tribes. They were in a transition period. All the 12 tribes of Israel had lived under the law of Moses until Christ came to the earth, except for a few individuals that God revealed eternal life to, like Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and those in Hebrews 11. But this was a transition period in which they had to get people to quit thinking the way they had thought for generations, many generations, particularly since Moses and the law of Moses, if you will, the statutes, the ordinances, the sacrifices, which he didn't speak to them when, about when they came out of Egypt or Mitzrayim. He said, I didn't even tell you about those things. They were added because of transgression, Jeremiah 7.22 tells us. If they had lived God's way, all those sacrifices and all that stuff would have never been laid on them. They became a heavy burden, that part of the statutes and the law. The, law, the Ten Commandments were never a burden. But having to sacrifice animals would be a burden. Having to go through all the cleansings and washings and all those things would be a burden today, would it not? God does not require that. Now James, the very one who wrote this back in Acts 15 had to preside at a meeting or a council of the elders and apostles in Jerusalem because Gentiles were coming into the church and they had not followed the laws of circumcision according to the law of Moses. And here there were all these grown men coming into the church. And it says that many 
criticized them and said, you have to be circumcised. Now that would kind of come as a blow. When we came into the church, they said, quit eating pig and keep Saturday instead of Sunday. That didn't hurt very much. Circumcision is a different matter. And that's what they were telling them they had to do. And then the Pharisees got hold of it because they were supposedly the leaders of religion. So they had to have a big council. They didn't turn it over to the people to vote on either, by the way. They called a council of the apostles and elders. And they had to make a decision. And there was much disputation, it says there in Acts 15. Many had an opinion on it. And then Peter explained the whole situation. And James echoed it and made the decision. He says, my sentence is, we'll not trouble them with this. What a relief. When the letter went out to all the Gentile churches, you don't have to line up, boys. You don't worry about that one. But that decision was made because circumcision is of the heart, not of the flesh. That's even said in the Old Testament. That circumcision was only laid on Abraham and his children and all those people for a time. And that it was only a type of cutting the human heart off. That human, deceptive, carnal part of it and becoming circumcised in the heart. So they made the right decision there, did they not? That's what God always wanted in the first place. And that's what He wants of us. That our whole heart be to Him. God has not chosen the poor of this world, rich, but rich in... Uh, He's chosen the poor, rich in faith, which He has promised the kingdom of God. Verse 6, But contrarily, human beings, us, you have despised the poor. Do not rich men oppress you and draw you before the judgment seats? It had been done physically in Israel, and it was being repeated among the twelve tribes who were trying to transition to a godly way of thinking. Is it not today, even in this nation of Israel, that it's the banks, the bankers, who are oppressing us, and destroying our economy and our ability to make a living that creates the pockets with holes that Haggai speaks of? Isn't it the rich people and the corporations and the government that are bringing trouble upon us as human beings? Why look to the rich? Either in the physical nations of Israel or in the church, either one. Do not they blaspheme that worthy name by the which you were called? Right now in our nation, they're trying to get rid of Christianity, trying to get religion out of the schools, out of the public eye. They're trying to undermine God in every way and get us all to believe in evolution in the schools. They blaspheme the name of God that we are trying to follow in everything they do. If you fulfill the royal law according to the Scripture, James calls the law of God a royal law. What is royal? The highest ruler, the king, the Lord of lords. 
Those are the rules set up by the God of the universe. It's a royal law. It's not a bad law. It's not something to be done away with. You can twist some things Paul said, but boy, if you listen to Peter and James and John, you don't want to do away with the law of God. And even Paul himself says the law is holy and just and good there in Romans in some of the scriptures that, he's, that they try to use to show that it's done away with. What in the world could be wrong with the law in the first place? It teaches you not to lie and steal and cheat and commit adultery and kill. <laughs> it teaches you to serve God above. What's so bad about that? Well, the biggest gripe most people have is it says you ought to keep the Sabbath. But the rest of it they despise as well. If you fulfill this royal law according to the Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You do well. That's the whole goal and purpose of the law, is to love everybody else as much as we love ourselves. We pamper ourselves. We make sure we are fed, that we are clothed, that we're warm, that we're comfortable in every way we possibly can that we're secure, we want to be loved and liked, we want to be accepted and acceptable, then cannot we return that favor to everyone else and make them feel warm and secure and important and loved? To feed them, to help them, to clothe them if they need it? Isn't that what we're called to do? That's not such a big deal when you think about it, is it? That we would do as much for someone else as we do for ourselves? But we have trouble with it. We have trouble with it. For instance, using the same analogy that James uses here, but is a great impairment to our faith... We hate it when we get talked about, don't we? We just hate it when somebody puts their tongue on us. It makes us feel bad. It makes us feel insecure. It makes us have feelings bad toward the one who said it, if we know who it was. We don't like to be put in a negative light. Can't we love our neighbor the same way? Why can't we do that? But it is so easy to whisper, to talk about, to judge, to assassinate the character of other human beings. It just comes so easy. But that's what the law is all about. It's just to take as good a care as everybody else as we want done to us. Not more than we love ourselves, but as much as. We make sure we're fed till we make sure others are fed. And Christ brought righteousness right down to that, didn't he? He says, the way you treat those who have need is the way you treat me. That's why he makes such a big deal out of feeding the widow and the orphan. is because we need to love them enough to make sure they have food, that they have warmth, that they have security. We need to do that. 
and we fall so far short of it. And that's why he makes it such a big deal in there, there in Isaiah 58. If we're not willing to do that, then he's not going to make us the restorers or repairers of the breach and restorers to paths to walk in. We've got to be sure that we take care of needs among our brothers and sisters when we see them. He brings it right down to that. And James does too. Saying the same thing here. Uh, the end of chapter 1 and here again. But if you have respect to persons, you commit sin and are convicted of the law as transgressors. If we put some above others. If we happen to like some better than others for whatever reasons. And therefore we give them respect or love or things and do more for them than we would do for someone else because they're not someone we like. Then he says we're breaking the law. For whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all. You just can't break one of God's laws without breaking all the rest. You just can't do it. He says the last one, the tenth one, covetousness, is the same as idolatry. It makes a complete circle. If you break the first one or you break the last one, you break everything in between. Because you're not showing love to God and you're not showing love to mankind. It's that simple. For he that said, do not commit adultery, said also, do not kill. Now, if you commit no adultery, yet if you kill, that can be spiritually, character assassination. Like I say, you don't see anybody in the church stabbing each other with knives in the back. I've never seen it yet. But we do it with our tongues daily. So that's murder. You are become a transgressor of the law. So speak you. And so do, as they that shall be judged by the law of liberty. For he shall have judgment without mercy, that has showed no mercy, and mercy rejoices against judgment. Isn't that what Christ said? And I've repeated it over and over for the last year, year and a half. Maybe I've repeated it too much. People think I'm beating the sheep when I keep saying we need to forgive one another and love one another and not judge one another. And pretty soon it becomes personal. And maybe I have pushed too hard sometimes, brethren. I don't do it out of hate. don't do it toward animosity or have anything against any one individual anywhere. I want us all to be in the kingdom of God. Maybe I've pushed you too hard for too long. And if I have, I'm sorry that I've done that. I don't want to discourage you. I don't want you to give up. But we have to come to grips with these things. And it doesn't matter what part of the Bible we go to, it seems. We come back to the same things. James and Peter were the strongest leaders in the church at that time, or the ones at headquarters who were in charge. There's a little bit of contention as to whether it was James or whether it was Peter who was in absolute charge, but one of the two was. So when James wrote to the whole 
nations of Israel and the budding church of God, these are the things that he wrote about. Things that we still struggle with to this very day. They struggled with then, and it hindered their faith. We struggle with them, and it hinders our faith. So, let's just take it for what it says. Wherever we go in the Bible, it seems we always come back to the same thing. You just got to love everybody as much as you love yourself. And God will have mercy upon those that show mercy. And those that do not show mercy, He will not have mercy with. How many different ways is that said throughout the Bible? I didn't intend to bring that up necessarily because I've talked about it a lot over the last year or more. But here it is again in the context. That's just what God says. Have mercy on each other and don't judge one another. Mercy rejoices against judgment. Now that shows you God's attitude toward you and me. He can make a judgment based on what we're thinking and saying and doing in our lives, can't He? And He can condemn us to the lake of fire so very easily, every last one of us. But His overall attitude of merciful or mercifulness is so strong that He simply rejoices against judgment. That's why we have that psalm that says over and over and over every... uh, How many verses? God's mercy endures forever. His mercy endures forever. Mercy is so much greater than judgment. It is so easy for us to judge one another and put one another down and to look at each other's faults and sins and problems and so on. But it is so hard for us to be merciful. We don't have the very nature of God. We do not have mercy within ourselves beyond a certain level. It comes only from the Spirit of God, from the mind of God, who rejoices in showing you and me mercy. There's not a person in this room or outside it that might hear this that God would not rejoice in showing mercy to. He didn't send His Son to this earth to save the righteous. He sent Him to save sinners. He has such a great overpowering desire to show mercy that He gave up the only other God-being equal to Him Sent him here to live 33 and a half years with the possibility of sinning so that we might be saved. What an incredible sacrifice. What an incredible risk in a way. And yet, both the Father and the Son were so confident that it could be pulled off that they went ahead and did it. And Christ came and dwelt on this earth for 33 and a half years and never once sinned never once even said anything bad. That's beyond my comprehension. How could he do that? And they did it for the sole reason of being able to show mercy to you and me through his blood. That's how merciful God is. 
That's our goal. That's our purpose, is to become as forgiving, as loving, as kind, as merciful as we can possibly be. So that our mercy endures not for a moment, not for a day, but forever. We're here to come to think like God, to be like God in every way. And that's the way He is. So He's calling on you and me, right here, through James, to show the kind of mercy to each other that God has showed to us. Can we love our brother, our neighbor, as ourselves? God has showed you and me mercy. Can we not then, in turn, show others mercy? That's only treating them as we would want to be treated. We want God's mercy. We pray for it, don't we? I don't think there's hardly a day that goes by that I don't pray for that particular thing, is that God will have mercy on me, a sinner. I think I pray that virtually every day. I might miss it once in a while, but that's one of the main centers of my prayer, is that God will forgive me of all the things I do and think that are wrong. Now I have to turn around and extend that to you. You have to pray that and then turn around and extend it to me. All of us have to extend it to one another. If we're to have peace and love and harmony and unity and all those things that Christ says the body ought to have and that Paul enumerates in 1 Corinthians 12. If we can't have mercy on one another, we'll never, ever get along. Because every one of us infringes upon the feelings, the rights of each other on a pretty regular basis, one way or another, whether it's just social slights or whatever it might be. Every one of us does. So, we have to do what Christ and the Father do. Show mercy, forgiveness on one another. And then He's going to show mercy on us, brethren, and He's going to come to us and dwell among us. We have those promises. So I think I'm going to stop there for today. That's probably as strong a note as I could end on. Because if we can show the mercy God has, then it makes our faith strong. If we can find it in our hearts, our minds, our emotions, to give, forgive each other no matter what the infraction might be, be it large, be it small, whatever it might be. If we can do that then we're coming to have the mind of God.